Aaron uh, isn't our usual speaker. Hamish Taylor is usually here, and he has gone south to, to Hamilton, of all places, to do some preaching down there. Uh, so we're, we've asked Aaron, who's part of our church, and he's had a long history in the ministry, uh, which I think he's going to tell you a bit about that in his stories. Uh, but uh, currently he's doing counseling. Uh, he's worked in radio a lot. What else is happening right now for you? Politics stuff, like cannabis reform, uh, a lot of that stuff he's involved with. Um, but anyway, let's all welcome Aaron Ironside to, to give a little... Before I started off in Christian radio, uh, I was on the Morning Pirates on Radio Hardaki, and maybe another day I'll tell you the story of what happened there. Uh, this is me from uh, my time at Rima. I spent 20 years working for Rima Broadcasting, or just under, in one guise or another. I worked through all the stations. When I was young and single, I worked on Life FM, and, and then I had a family, and so I moved on to Rima, and then finally my family grew up, and I went to Star, where Christian DJs go to die. So... Uh, that was uh, the radio career, which uh, seems to have passed. There we go. The click is working. That's good. Uh, so here's something I was doing concurrently, which is really what we're going to talk about uh, today. Deb and I planted a church back in 2002 uh, that uh, was in West Auckland, was in Henderson. Went from uh, 2002 uh, to 2017. Uh, here's me probably preaching on some kind of Jewish festival. I didn't wear that every week. That was just uh, a particular Sunday we were talking about something Jewish. Uh, and what I wanted to do today was to share one of the stories that we saw firsthand as part of that 15-year journey, as part of what is the theme this year for Church Northwest, the year of hope and wanting to see other people experience that hope that many of us in this room uh, have found in Jesus. Uh, so we want to tell a story today from that time. It's interesting when you look back, you get to see more of what God did in your life. And uh, we looked back after 15 years. Uh, it's a whole other story for another day. What happened when uh, Deb and I went to Australia in 2017 and, and the church finished up. Uh, but we looked back and we'd seen some incredible things. We'd seen 117 people uh, baptized. We'd seen four new churches established. Uh, and something we didn't anticipate, 30 people were now sort of working in full-time Christian work who had never done that kind of stuff before. So we were really like, wow, something kind of incredible happened. When we started the church, Deb and I had this kind of experiment in our mind. And the experiment was, could we convince a group of Christians to take sort of personal responsibility for sharing their faith? Because oftentimes in, in church life, uh, evangelism is something that's done you know, in, in big meetings, you know, thinking of Billy Graham or those sorts of things. Uh, and we wanted to see what would happen if a group of Christians just decided to share the hope they had with the people they knew. Uh, and that was exactly what we saw, and, and today I'm going to share one of the stories uh, that led to several people coming to know Jesus. We discovered that in the New Testament, they didn't have big crusade meetings with the Billy Grahams. They didn't have the kinds of evangelistic outreaches that we often see. What they had was this thing called oikos. So there's going to be a new word for today. Can you say oikos? 
oikos. It's a Greek word, and we get the word economy from it. Uh, and oikos is about your household. I don't know if you come from a household where there's a business sort of that has gone down the generations. My dad was a commercial painter, and my brother is now a commercial painter, so that's kind of our oikos. I sadly try and paint and get very red-faced and have some allergic reaction to hard work. Uh, so that oikos doesn't extend to me. But in the ancient world, of course, it wasn't uncommon for a rich person to kind of surround themselves with a whole lot of families attached to them, their oikos. In modern language, we call that our sphere of influence, you know, the people we know, the people that we're in relationship, in community with. And there's this famous story that we find in the New Testament of a time where Jesus met this lady who, for all intents and purposes, was a bit of an outcast in her community. He ends up having a conversation with her when she's drawing water from a well, when the water has warmed up and nobody wants that water. And she kind of feels that she's the kind of person who's embarrassed to kind of be out in public. And she has this conversation with Jesus. And she comes to realize who he is, that he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the one who could save. The end of the story we find in John 4 says that many of the people from her town, Samaria, the Samaritans, uh, believed in Jesus because of that woman's testimony. She said, you know, he told me everything. I mean, this guy knew I'd been married several times and I wasn't married to the current guy. Uh, and then we find out that uh, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they wanted him to stay on for a bit longer. And then finally, many more uh, became believers because they heard Jesus firsthand. And they said ultimately to the woman, hey, look, we don't just believe because of your story, but we've heard for ourselves. We're pretty convinced this really is the savior of the world. And that was right at the center of this kind of approach to sharing faith was, what if you just shared your story? What if you just told another person who God was to you, what he'd done in your life? It wouldn't be enough all by itself, but it'd be a really great place to start a conversation and to see what God might do. So I want to tell you a story that starts in a hairdresser's salon and will ultimately end with over 40 people choosing to follow Jesus and getting baptized. So let's meet some of the early characters in the story. So in this photo, you see uh, Debbie's mum and dad. You can see John in the center of the, the photo there doesn't have long uh, left in this world and would go uh, to be with Jesus not long after this photo was taken. Uh, and on the uh, far left-hand side there is Deb's mum, Louise. In the white are Karen and Pele. Uh, and this story starts with Karen. Karen is a hairdresser. And this story starts with the young couple who joined us to help start this church. Wendy and Hamish uh, are their names, and, and they were about to get married. And so Wendy was getting her hair done with Karen. So this is the first scene, right? Somebody in the hairdresser's chair getting their hair done. After a few moments, both Wendy and Karen realized that they were both trying to talk to each other about Jesus uh, and sort of stopped and went, hold on, is this what we're doing? Are we both trying to do the same thing? Uh, and Wendy asked Karen, hey, were you guys part of a church yet? And she said, no, no, we're newly married and we're looking for a new church. And uh, Wendy said, well, look, we're about to start a new church. Why don't you get involved with this new church? So this story actually starts with two Christians talking to each other. They're strangers, but they, they meet around the hairdresser's salon talking to each other about church. 
So Karen and Pele join our church. Our very first meeting is in John and Louise's lounge room, and suddenly these strangers turn up. We're like, wow, this is amazing. This is like magic. You haven't even advertised or nothing. So Karen decided that she would invite her childhood best friend, Nana, who's in the purple scarf. So Nana starts coming along to church with her partner, Daryl. At that time, uh, uh, Nana and Daryl are not married, but they're living as a family. They have children of their own together. In fact, there were a couple of families in that sort of scenario in in the church. I was a little bit frustrated because people used to come up to me and say things like, you're the pastor, you should tell them they're living in sin. Like, yes, that would be very helpful. I'm sure they'll appreciate that a lot. So I thought to myself, yeah, it's not my job to tell people how to live, but maybe I could ask God to start speaking to them. Well, this other couple, Hemi and Sienna, had just decided to follow Jesus. So I thought, well, there's a good chance Jesus will talk to them. So I thought, I'm going to pray for them. So I pray, God, would you, you know, tell them uh, that they might like to get their, their story sort of sorted out. And the next, that weekend on the Saturday night, Hemi rings me and says, I've just proposed to Sienna. I'm like, that is awesome. That's one. I thought, but... Nana and Daryl, that could be tougher, because as far as I can figure, neither of them are following Jesus yet, so I don't really expect them to be able to hear from him, but I'll start praying anyway. Well, the very next morning, Nana got up, and she was watching television and saw Charles Stanley on the TV. Familiar with, you ever seen Charles Stanley? He is really old. I think he knew Jesus personally. I mean, very old. And anyway, at the end of the TV program, he invites people to give their lives to Jesus, and Nana came to church and said, I've decided to follow Jesus, and I prayed the prayer at the end of the TV program. She says, I only have one other prayer, and that is that Daryl will want to marry me. Well, at that point, Daryl was working as a car salesman, and he was used to work on a Sunday. So he has no idea that any of this has happened. He's been at the car yard all day. When he gets home from the car yard that night, he walks in. He says, you know what? I've been thinking all day. You and I should get married. So at that point, I'm like, okay, that's two for two. And before we uh, got ready for the marriage, we did a baptism, and Nana was pregnant, so I count that as two for one. Uh, And so here's Daryl and and Nana and uh, baby Shine. Now, I should say these stories are a little bit old. Shine is now a teenager, which makes me feel old. Uh, But uh, that's uh, Shine, who was born uh, not long after, actually, the church was established and they had gotten married. So then Nana... She decided that she would invite her friend, uh, Wiki. Wiki and Willie had been living in Australia. They'd come back from Oz. Things weren't going so great in their marriage, and they really wanted to try and sort some stuff out. And uh, Nana had known Wiki since they were were kids and said, why don't you come along to church? So Wiki and Willie came along, and very quickly they realized, you know, if if our lives are going to have any chance of working out, we need this Jesus. And so they said, yep, we're going to follow Jesus too. And I learned a really important lesson. It's really hard to baptize a Tongan man in a spa pool. Uh, Very difficult. So that's Wiki, uh, Willie rather, Willie Wolfgram, uh, working uh, in an old man's neighbor uh, garden who we were uh, cleaning up. He lived in the neighborhood and we were helping him out. So then... Wiki, who was working at the Waipareta Trust at the time as a social worker, decides that she's going to invite her colleague from work, Trish, to come to church. And Trish is really someone who is trying to find some meaning and some hope, and it's not long before she decides, too, that actually she'd like to follow Jesus. And this time we'd learned our lesson, and we, we had a baptism in a proper-sized pool. This is uh, uh, Chris, Trish's husband, and their eldest daughter, Nanaki. 
I remember that baptism because at that time, Chris had long dreadlocks. And he was sort of wide-eyed when he saw this happen. He was like, what is going on that my wife is becoming a Christian? We are not Christians. Like, from his point of view, they were uh, cannabis-smoking, Rastafarian reggae, reggae music playing. Like, this is not the life that he has signed on for, and yet he's watching his wife get baptized. He's like, man. And I could see he is not happy. He is not happy about this at all. But he was obviously kind of curious, because a few weeks later, he agreed to go to a men's meeting at a local church one evening with some of the guys from our group. And at the end of the meeting, they noticed that Chris was kind of emotional. Uh, now, I, I, I used to try and encourage people, you know, in, in those sorts of moments when you realize that somebody might be interested about Jesus is to actually kind of be a bit bold. And this is the question I taught people to ask. The question was, was there any reason you shouldn't give your life to Jesus before you leave this place? Uh, I, I first encountered the question one time when one of the ladies in uh, our group had come to faith and she had brought her husband to a group. And he had come along one night for coffee at our house. And I'd said this to him, is there any reason why you, you know, shouldn't give your life to Jesus? And he said, oh, there's something inside of me that won't let me. I'm like, oh, well, how about you let me pray, and let's see if that thing loses its power. So we prayed for a second or two, and then I said, and how about now? He said, yep, I think I'm good now. And then he gave his life to Jesus. So when the guy saw that Chris was feeling a bit emotional, they said to him, you know, what's, what's going on? And he said, oh, there's something powerful happening in Trisha's life, and I'm pretty sure I want it. And so they then said to him, well, look, is there any reason why you shouldn't give your life to Jesus? He said, no, I want to do that. I want to pray. So they prayed at the back of this church, and he gave his life to Jesus. Well, a couple of weeks later, Trish rings me up, and she says, you've got to come over and sort Chris out. He wants to follow Jesus, but he doesn't want to stop smoking weed every day. You've got to come and sort him out. I'm like, oh, again, this is going to be fun. So I went over to their house that night, and I'm sitting there kind of showing him Bible verses and trying to encourage him that, that this whole marijuana thing probably wasn't part of the Christian thing. And I'd been a, you know, a marijuana user before I'd become a Christian, so I kind of understood how powerful it was and the hold it had on his life. But anyway, he was unconvinced. I said to him, though, tell you what, why don't you and I just start having coffee every week? He's like, okay, we can do that. And it wasn't long after, he, he picked me up to have coffee one afternoon, and I could see he was sort of bursting to tell me something. He said, oh, Aaron, i got to tell you, I had a smoke the other night. I said, that's awesome, Chris. He goes, how do you figure? I said, well, a couple of weeks ago, you were trying to tell me that having a smoke wasn't a problem. And now you're telling me because you're wanting to sort of confess it. We have proof that God lives inside of you, because he has changed the way you're thinking about this. And so he agreed that he wanted to break free from that life. And so he did. Uh, and, and we continued on together. Uh, and they started coming to a Wednesday night Bible study called Jam, Jesus and Me. And uh, they came along every Wednesday night. And, and one night we were, we were studying this passage in the New Testament that talks about not being drunk on wine, but being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And at the end of that Bible study, I thought, you know, you can't just preach or teach on a passage like that that talks about being filled with the Spirit. We should probably pray for each other. So I said, why don't you break into pairs and pray for each other? 
So everybody did, but there must have been an odd number of people in the room because Chris didn't have someone to pray with him. And so like any sort of modern person does, he just picked up his phone and he was you know, starting to check out Facebook or whatever. I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to miss this moment with him. So I said, oh, Chris, would you mind if I prayed for you? He said, that'd be fine. I said, Chris, do you know what your name means? I'm one of those people who loves to know what names mean. My name, Aaron, means speaker. That's kind of helpful, given that I spent a life with my microphone in a hand. also means mountain, but let's not talk about that. Uh, so I said, Christopher means the one who bears the burden of Christ. I said, God, would he bear the burden of your presence right now? Well, God powerfully touched him. I mean, it must have been powerful, and I certainly knew he was still a new Christian because when that happened, he swore and then sat down and then said, oh, what's going on here? Uh, and he says to, uh, to Trish, you're going to have to take me home. I can't, I can't drive home, which made me chuckle. They only lived like a couple of hundred meters from the church. But nonetheless, she drives him home, and I get this text late at night. And he says, you've got to come over tomorrow afternoon and explain to me what God wants from this Maori fella. I'm like, okay. All right. So I went over the next day, and his friend Lance was there. And Lance had been a childhood friend and, uh, of Chris's. So I'd ask Chris, you know, what had happened the night before? He said, it was amazing. I just couldn't believe how real God was and how his power touched me so powerfully. Oh, that's wonderful. So, of course, my radar went, oh, Lance, you know, where, where are you at with the Jesus thing? And Lance said, well... I've been to church a couple of times as a kid, but I've never really considered it any further. So what's the question I asked? Is there any reason why you shouldn't give your life to Jesus today? And he said, well, no, not that I can think of. Now, now then I had this, I thought, a genius idea, but it turned out in retrospect not to be as well thought through. Because I thought, what if I asked Chris to pray that God will do in Lance what God had been doing in Chris the night before. I thought that sounded like a very cool thing to think. So I thought that's what I'm going to ask uh, Chris to do is to pray for Lance. What I hadn't thought through was that Lance has been living this kind of drug addict life, uh, you know, up until this point, but really hasn't properly become a Christian kind of yet. This is all happening in this moment and didn't bank on the reaction that happened. Because as soon as Chris put his hand out to pray for Lance, Lance's hands turned out like talons, and his eyes rolled back in his head, and he started hissing and snarling. I'm like, oh, goody. It's a Thursday afternoon, and we're going to have an old-fashioned deliverance. Sitting on the couch is Chris and Trisha's youngest boy. They have, all the children have N names. So it was Nanaki, and Natural, and Nina, and Nesta, and this was Noble. And Noble was about four years old, and he is sitting there with his eyes as wide as saucers. What is happening to Uncle Lance? So we prayed together, and, uh, and Lance, thankfully, uh, came through that moment, and whatever was kind of affecting him stopped affecting him. And just amazing things were happening. Then one Wednesday, I was playing golf with one of the guys in the church, and I get this phone call from Chris. But this time, Chris is in tears. He's blubbering. I'm like, dude, what's happening? He said, well, Natural has been playing netball and had some kind of turn. And so the doctor checked her out, and then the doctor wanted to check out all of the kids. And when they checked out Nanaki, well, they called the ambulance. And, and they took her straight to the hospital. And they're saying she's going to die. And I'm like, what? It turns out that 
Nanaki pulmonary hypertension. So lungs weren't functioning, so one side of her heart had enlarged to accommodate. I'm like, man, I can't believe this. They said her heart rate was 220 beats a minute. And then if it continued on for much longer, she would, she would die that day. And Chris is just bawling. I'm like, okay, okay. Well, the Bible study's off. We're going to have a prayer meeting, and, you know, and then I'm going to come and visit you in the hospital. Well, I'll tell you, friends, I've been in a lot of prayer meetings you know, as a pastor in my life, and this prayer meeting would definitely be in one of the sort of top five moments I've ever had, spiritually speaking. I was really serious with people that night. I knew the stakes were high. I said, look, if you don't believe that God can heal Nanaki, you don't, please don't pray with us. Just feel free to, to not do that tonight. And we were real serious. We took communion together and said, look, let's, let's get stuff sorted with God and let's pray. And, and the prayer meeting that followed was one of the most amazing times I'd ever encountered where the presence of God just filled that room. And I'm like, wow, okay, well, if the prayer meeting is anything to go by, you know, I'm going to go up to the hospital and see what's happening. When I got up to the hospital, Nanaki, who's you know, 15, says that she could feel Jesus holding her heart. She's lying in a hospital bed. But I take Trish and Chris off to the parents' room, and this is what they say to me. They say, Aaron, no matter what happens with Nanaki, we promise to keep following Jesus. I'm like, okay, all right. Well, for the next 18 months, everything sort of revolved around Nanaki because, uh, you know, she had so many needs. They had to move from the damp house they lived in to a much drier home. We started having the youth group on a Sunday morning so that she could be part of things. And she was in and out of hospital the whole time. But then there was one night that she was, you know, taken back to the hospital and I got a call to come up to the hospital at midnight. And I kind of knew that this time things were different and I remember she had about 20 of her friends standing there, and, and someone says, oh, Aaron, would you please pray? And I'm like, I don't know what to pray. I don't even want to pray. But they, everybody got in this big circle around the bed, and, and Nanaki is unconscious you know, on these machines. And this is what I prayed. I said, God, none of us approve of what you're doing right now, but your will be done. Nobody liked that prayer. People are looking at me like, well, where's your faith now, Pastor Man? But I kind of knew something, something different was happening now. Well, the next day, I went back up to the hospital, and uh, the doctor said, look, there's an enzyme your body releases uh, when your heart has failed, and that enzyme's in Nanaki's blood. And the only thing keeping her alive is the machine, and we need to turn the machine off so that she can die. And so this time we stood around her bed and we, we sung worship songs to her and we, we said our goodbyes to her. And, and then again, we went into the parents' room. It was such a surreal moment because on the television was the Pike River Memorial Service. That was when this was happening. And, and so there's this nation, national kind of grieving going on on the TV, but I'm not really worried about that. If I'm honest, I'm worried about what's happening in this room. And about 20 minutes later, Trish turns up and, and, she, and she looks at me and she says, is she there yet? And I'll be honest, I was a bit slow with the question. I'm like, what, 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 what? And then finally sort of my brain caught up and went, yeah. Yeah, she's there. Yeah, she's opened her eyes in the presence of Jesus. She is there. You know, this family uh, had become the center of our church world, but they didn't want to be that family who had lost a child. You know, they, they needed something new to happen in their world. So 
About six months later, they announced that they were going to live in Brisbane. And so they went to live uh, in Brisbane, where they've now been living uh, ever since. Because they, well, they wanted to have a way of redefining their story, you know, more than just the family that had lost a daughter. But they kept their promise. That's the thing, they kept their promise. They're continuing to follow Jesus. Uh, in fact, they're helping lead a, a church, a new church uh, in Brisbane called Kingdom Makers, where uh, Chris is on the worship team and Trish looks after pastoral care. I want to read to you a Facebook post. I think this maybe was about three years after Nanaki passed on what would have been her birthday. This is what Trish posted. Chris and I had our firstborn baby girl, Nanaki. We were so young. We had both sides of our families with us. But because Nanaki was taking her time, they all went to the family room to have KFC. And that's when she decided to come. And the nurses said, look, with your family, and when your family come back, there's so many of them. What do you want us to do? Chris and I uh, both said bravely to lock the door. And so she did. And the next 15 years and six months were some of the best, worst, happiest, saddest, challenging, devastating, celebrated, and life-changing years of our lives. Today, we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ have full confidence that Nanaki is in a place that is not in our imagination called heaven. She's not having a spliff with Tupac or Bob Marley because she now lives in the presence of a holy and majestic God, and he is Yahweh. In the beginning, he spoke the world, the heavens, and the earth into creation. He is our perfect peace that surpasses all understanding. And in him, he is our joy. Today, I don't have the pleasure of sharing the day with my nanaki, but in the presence of my Lord and Savior, I know I, I can be close to her. I often try to envision her all growing up. And one night in Chris's dream, she was running up ahead of him. And when she turned around, she is tall, strong, athletic, mature, and she is fierce. And this life here on earth is only temporary for us all, but life in heaven is forever. And I think if she were here today, she'd tell me to get off Facebook and make her a cake. So with all the love of my heart, I bless each of you for keeping our family in your prayers today on Nanaki's 19th birthday. The Watini family went to live in Brisbane. They had uh, another child, you can now see in the, in the blue shirt, that is Nehemiah. So they've kept up with the end names. Pretty sure they have to stop having kids now because the next one has to be Nigel, and that just won't work. And all of the family are following Jesus. And get this. And in the last year, we've now found out that Chris and Nanaki both have the same condition that killed, a natural rather. Chris and Natural have the same condition that took Nanaki. And Chris is a shadow of himself. And they came for a visit uh, this last year, and Chris and Trish came and sat at our table for lunch. And they said, Chris has the same thing, and he's been in and out of hospital as well. And Chris is frail and weak. And Trish just leans over and touches his hand and says, so we'll just have to do what we can while we can. In the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, they have kept their promise to follow Jesus. But all of that started with someone telling their hairdresser about church. And God came into their story at just the time that they would need him. 
Because I promise you, friends, that the Chris and Trish that I met, who was smoking weed every day, uh, who was spending all their money on takeaways and marijuana, who are in no position to look after a child with a serious illness. And they needed the strength and the hope that Jesus offered. And Jesus is so real to them today that even though they now face more tragedy in the near future, they hold on even tighter to him. So here's the challenge for you and I. For those of us who know Jesus, would we tell someone about church? Would we share our story with someone and see what happens? See if our story, in fact, sets in motion a ripple like this chain reaction of hope that began to occur. And maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I don't know this Jesus. I want to ask you, where is your hope? How will you get through the darkest experiences of what it means to be human? I've found and Trish and Chris have found that Jesus is the one that you need in those darkest moments. Now, I'm not going to do anything weird or embarrassing for you today, except to say to you, I'd love to talk to you. But you probably came with someone who'd love to talk to you. So why don't you just talk to them about why it is they have that hope? How did they find Jesus to be so real? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are the one who is trying to reach out to provide hope and to provide strength that we might be able to navigate the highs and the lows that life throws at us. God, I thank you that that hope is real. I thank you that you are real and that when we hold on to you, we find something so real, so secure, so dependable that we can navigate the darkest of times. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would come to know in a deeper way from wherever we find ourselves today, in a deeper way, would we come face to face with that hope, find you standing in front of us with your arms out wide, offering to embrace us, to hold us, to keep us. May we find that hope and may we share it with others who desperately need it as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.